Today's message is called Lockdown on Fear, the Lord in our midst. First section, your fearless leader. Our main point to the prophet Zephaniah is that we need not fear because God is people. In fact, he rejoices over us, which in turn prompts us to have joy even when times are tough and his promises have not yet been realized. Have you noticed the times lately have seemed fearful? The pandemic wears on. We've passed from fearful new variant Delta to new variant Omicron. I'm going to say it Omicron because Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, big O. Uh, Omicron is little O. So anyway, you can say it how you like. Ah. The new case counts in our province have risen to over 1,000 in the past week. Scrolling through the news headlines, sometimes it almost seems the news agencies rely on fear for their marketing, one scary headline after another. Trying to plan Christmas get-togethers can become a delicate dance of what's allowed, who's willing, what's safe, what's prudent, not just what can we get away with. Nobody wants another lockdown. Instead, we'd rather have a lockdown on fear. Wouldn't it be nice to see other people's faces again instead of masks? Wouldn't it be wonderful to put this whole pandemic chapter behind us and breathe a sigh of relief? Can't we lock down fear itself and go back to normal? Dealing with people can be difficult. Teachers know that dealing with a whole classroom of rowdy students multiplies the challenges. But one teacher refused to give in to fear when assigned a problem class. A certain school teacher injured his back and had to wear a plaster cast around the upper part of his body. It fit under his shirt and wasn't noticeable at all. On the first day of the term, still with the cast under his shirt, he found himself assigned to the toughest students in school. Hmm. Walking confidently into the rowdy classroom, he opened the window as wide as possible and then busied himself with desk work. When a strong breeze made his tie flap, he took the desk stapler and stapled the tie to his chest. He had no trouble with discipline after that. (laughs) Now, we may not have chests that can take a staple, but by faith in Christ, we have a Savior in our heart that can still give us confidence and strength to stand up to tough circumstances. In today's reading from Zephaniah, we find the secret revealed, and it's something longer lasting than even a plaster cast. Next section, not fearing the joy suckers. First, a bit of an introduction so we don't just parachute into the last half of the last chapter of a book in the Bible while ignoring the first two-thirds. Zephaniah was the great-grandson of good King Hezekiah. So Zephaniah probably knew a thing or two about what went on at court and in the broader political sphere. Unfortunately, wicked King Manasseh succeeded Hezekiah and turned the nation of Judah considerably for the worse. The northern kingdom of Israel had fallen in 722 BC, about 25 years before Manasseh's 55-year reign began. So Manasseh had a long reign, quite a bad influence over those decades. Second Chronicles 33 summarizes how far Manasseh got off course. 
He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So you have half a century of extensive idolatry becoming officially approved. Along comes King Josiah in 640 BC and inherits this mess. This seems to be the time Zephaniah is prophesying during, along with Jeremiah, Nahum, and perhaps Habakkuk. About the eighth year into his reign, King Josiah begins to seek the Lord, does some house cleaning in the house of the Lord, and the book of God's law is rediscovered, prompting reforms. But up to that point, it appears the nation is headed for judgment. Assyria is still powerful, but in 627, its king dies and Babylon's rise to power is imminent, to be followed by their invasion and destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC. It's a fearful time, rather tenuous politically. The king after Manasseh, named Ammon, only lasted two years, being assassinated by his own officials. Zephaniah the prophet mentions some of the sins of the leadership during that time. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. Moloch is the god that they sacrifice their children to in the fire. Such an awful thing. So you can see the mixing of religions there. Baal, the starry host, Moloch. Also that some people purported to worship both the Lord and Moloch, presumably attempting to cover their bases, whichever god was right. Zephaniah 1.6 Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. They treat God as irrelevant. Who needs a divine guide? We can manage just fine on our own. Thank you very much. They don't seek or inquire of the Lord. See also later in the book, chapter 3, verses 4 and 7, her prophets are arrogant. They are treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law but they were still eager to act corruptly in all they did. Arrogance, treacherous, plotting, not respecting the holy space of God's sanctuary, twisting the law, acting corruptly. And then 3.11, I'll remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. Hmm. Pride, haughtiness. We want to be in control, in charge. We think we're pretty hot stuff. Does any of that describe your attitude? 
modern culture aims to build self-esteem in our children, but sometimes this results in egotism, pride, arrogance, not being able to acknowledge our weaknesses and faults or addictions, to admit we need help. Especially now with technology, Google, we a portable God in our pocket. Google knows about just about everything we can ask it. It's even a greater tendency for people to become self-absorbed, walking along, head down, lost in little cyber world. A group can be sitting at the restaurant and not interacting because they're all on their phones. Technology becomes an excuse for self to become more dominant. We find ourselves influenced by the voice of our favorite media stars and less informed by God's word. But through the prophet Zephaniah, God predicts deliverance from the fear spread on account of these arrogant leaders, local and foreign, who oppress and prey upon people. The day will come when the faithful need not fear the joy suckers. Zephaniah 3, 15 and 16. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Verse 19 identifies some of the categories of people who will experience the Lord's deliverance. The lame, the scattered, and those put to shame. It says, At that time I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame and gather those who have been scattered. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. The lame, those encumbered by physical limitations and presumably ignored or even ridiculed by the haughty and arrogant. Those who've suffered accidents. Those who've had debilitating disease like leprosy or polio. Then there's the scattered Assyria had invaded the northern kingdom and dispersed Jews to various countries while bringing in foreigners to settle there instead, hence the mixed-blood Samaritans. Before long, thousands of Jews from Jerusalem and Judah would also be exiled, mainly to Babylon, although they would eventually return and seem to have been able to keep their Jewish identity intact better as a group. Who would we consider scattered in our society today? The homeless? Refugees? Minimum wage earners who find it difficult to find a place to rent? Students far away from home at university? Also, there's those Zephaniah calls put to shame. The exiles would be ashamed in their foreign placements because Israel and Judah were defeated countries. Who might be feeling ashamed in our community today? Those who are between jobs? Those who've succumbed to addictions or whose marriages have failed? When do you feel ashamed, not wanting to show your face in public? COVID has been an isolating time for anybody, let alone those who find it hard to go out in public in the first place. It's much easier now to just stay at home and shop online or have your grocery order put together for you. For all these classes of people, the lame, the scattered, the shamed, 
the Lord has good news. We'll get to it in verse 17. Section, anchored in God's presence and being precious to him. In this passage, the key to joy is found in our closeness to the Lord. Zephaniah 3, 15, and 17 share a phrase that emphasizes the need to be God. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. How is our joy anchored? In God's promise of being with us. Note the association in the context. He is king. He is mighty to save. Our problems pale in comparison with his power possibilities. God being with us is what's at the heart of the mystery of Christmas, the incarnation, Jesus taking on human flesh and being born in a stable like one of us ordinary plebs. Isaiah announced the promise to stubborn King Ahaz in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel which translates to mean God, L, with us. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God, with us. Uh, by the way, the Sunday school is talking about this same theme today, uh, and he said, isn't that the same thing Jesus emphasized when he ascended, his parting words just after the Great Commission? Matthew twenty-eight twenty, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you all the way to the very end of the age. And that's our hope, which Scripture paints a delightful picture of in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Doesn't that word picture inspire joy in your heart? To be with God forever. Now let's just camp out a little longer in Zephaniah 3.17. The verse says more. God's presence with us is encouraging in part because it says he is mighty to save. He has power to deliver from any problems. Likewise, in the New Testament, it says of Jesus even now already in Hebrews 7.25, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Hmm. Jesus is mighty to save you. He's praying for you even now. Zephaniah 3.17 adds, He will take great delight in you. He will rejoice over you with singing. Does your brain have a category for this kind of God that treasures you, holds you as precious, delights greatly in you? Just having you near him brings him joy? Or is your idea of God clouded by leftovers from the angry, temperamental, distant Greek god Zeus? 
You're some Nordic storm god hurling thunderbolts or some deist god that wound up the universe like a gigantic clock and then walked away and left it to itself. Those are not pictures of God the Bible gives. The God Jesus describes knows the hairs on our head, is closer to us than our next breath, knows exactly how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He's not indifferent to us. We are dear to him. A couple of other instances. Isaiah 65, 19. I'll rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. And Jesus' parable of the lost sheep, Luke 15, 5 and 6. When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. That's the kind of image Jesus wants us to have of our Heavenly Father. Also in Zephaniah 3.17, it says, He will quiet you with his love. There's that dearness, preciousness expressed again. God loves you. That's quieting to experience, reassuring, calming, bolsters our significance envelops us like a warm blanket on a cold night. New Living Translation puts it, with his love he will calm all your fears. Can you entrust whatever you're most worried and concerned about to this loving God? This great love is described in John 13, 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus cares for you. He would have washed your feet along with the other disciples. He went to the cross for your sins and mine so we could be with him forever. In the news, it was saddening this week to see an allegation of sexual misconduct has been made against Bruxy Cavey, teaching pastor at the Meeting House, which is home to some 5,000 people in 19 locations each Sunday. It was good, though, to see the church responding quickly and appropriately, placing the pastor on leave of absence, offering counseling and support to the woman making the allegation, and appointing an external investigator. The church's official statement also emphasizes this aspect of how important it is to know God is with us when we are most challenged. Maggie John, chair of the Overseer's Board, Jesus with us in the heartbreak. We have Jesus to keep at our center, to trust and depend on. We know he hears our prayers, prayers we're able to put words to, and the prayers for which we do not yet have words. We need to be praying together for all who are and will be impacted in this situation. The most important thing we can each be doing is praying. Thank you for praying for our church community to experience Jesus in real and tangible ways. And that in spite of challenging news like this, we will all see Jesus as true and real and with us in every moment. End quote. Section, restored and responding. So 
thus bolstered by God's presence and treasuring and love, where does that leave us? Our passage has a clue as to what our upshot can be, thus reinforced. Zephaniah 3.16, On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. Don't let your hands hang limp. New Living Translation puts it, Cheer up. Don't be afraid. Another way of thinking about not letting our hands hang limp is to not lose heart. Paul the Apostle writes in 2 Corinthians 4.1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. How come? Because we have received God's mercy, his loving kindness and forgiveness. Likewise, Hebrews 12.3 exhorts, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You can be encouraged, strengthened, motivated to endure, to, to carry on as we look to Jesus. Consider him. Next, in, uh, back to Zephaniah, verse 14 enjoins, Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice. With all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Can we get excited about our faith? This living relationship with the eternal God. Isn't that such a huge blessing and privilege? Sort of moves us to jump with joy on the inside when we play it. Note the association of joy with God's presence in Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The king of a particular country traveled often, but one day a man living near the palace remarked to a friend, well, it looks like the king is home. How do you know, asked the other. The man pointed up toward the royal house. Because when the king is home, he said, the castle is all lit up. Now, some of you have a song going in your mind right now. Joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart when the king is in residence. Well, maybe only me. Anybody else? Yeah, some of you know that. And verses 19 and 20 suggest any shame we had is gone, replaced by praise and honor from the Lord. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Our culture is not as honor or shame-based as some, such as Japan or Middle Eastern cultures. North Americans tend to emphasize more affluence, appearance, wealth, and, and we downplay issues of shame and honor. Yet there's a little moral gauge inside each of us that keeps score called conscience. When we come to Christ, he resets our shame indicator to zero. Yes, there may still be restitution we need to make to people to square up the relationship, but in our core being, we can know for sure we are forgiven accepted by our holy God because Jesus has atoned for our worst muck-ups. Instead, now we are honored as a king's kid. He calls us his own. Last section, 
J-O-Y or J-0-Y, nothing in between. Pastor Phil Toole of Scottsdale, Arizona, spells joy a little differently. J-0-Y. The, zero, the O becomes a zero instead. Pastor Toole explains the J stands for Jesus, the Y stands for you. Do you know what the O or stands for? It stands for zero. That's just what it says, nothing. What I'm saying here is the way to stay close to Jesus and keep joy in your heart is let nothing between Jesus and you. This idea of God's nearness and joy is reflected in a story about composer Franz Joseph Haydn. Recalling his struggles while working on a certain sacred piece, he wrote, I prayed to God, not like a miserable sinner in despair, but calmly, slowly. In this I felt that an infinite God would surely have mercy on his finite creature, pardoning dust for being dust. These thoughts cheered me up. I experienced a sure joy so confident that as I wished to express the words of the prayer, I could not express my joy but gave vent to my happy spirits and wrote above the miserere allegro, musical notation for quickly, lively, not what you usually think of for a, a piece about miserere. Haydn's music was so ebullient and upbeat in temperament that it was actually criticized by the sterner members of the church. Uh-oh, joy sucker alert. Haydn replied, Since God has given me a cheerful heart, he will forgive me for serving him cheerfully. Under the reality of a God who really cared for him, he said his heart leapt for joy. He could not prevent his music from expressing the same exuberance, even when the music was conveying Christianity's more somber themes. Let's pray. Thank you, dear God, for taking away our shame and reproach, giving us instead praise and honor and joy. We know we owe it all to Jesus, laying his life down in love for us. Forgive our pride our haughtiness and arrogance, our admiration for other idols that distract us from yourself. Remind us ever of your delighting in us, rejoicing over us, planning a better future for us with you, our mighty Savior. Praise you forever. Amen. Let's all stand and we'll finish with joy to the world.